the most important thing you can think about is when you take stock of your skills, about what are your abilities, whether you can, whether you write exceedingly well, whether you are exceedingly quick on your feet, whether you are very analytic and are able to kind of see multiple sides, whether you have an understanding of numbers. We all do the kind of personal inventory, those of us who are trying to find a way to succeed in life. Whether you're better, for those of you who are lawyers, whether you're a better litigator or be whether you're better at, in a corporate transaction. You, tr you try to figure out what skill sets you have. The one thing that often I think we don't talk about is, and we don't teach, is you have to also take an inventory about what are your other skills and how do you put them to use. And often, I think, especially for people who are rather well-credentialed, as all of you in this room, and successful, you won't always see the other parts of your skill set that, that will work for you. I had a brilliant young man who I hired at my last job. He was uh, a graduate of the Harvard Law School, African-American man, clerked in the U.S. Supreme Court, was in the office of the Solicitor General in the Supreme Court. Brilliant mind, wicked mind and very serious always in professional settings. And as I worked with him and got to know him, he had a fantastic sense of humor. He would, his, he would sparkle when he would laugh. He would make you feel warm. And I always said to him, I don't want to say his name because some of you may know him, you've got to put that to use as well. You've got to use that charm and that humor. You don't just lead always with the fierce intellect and the great credentials. And I think that one thing I've learned in my life is that I, I think success is measured by a lot of those things. And, and if there's one thing I've always learned from my dad, which who was, he was, my father was a banquet waiter at the Warwick Hotel. He was there for uh, 39 years. He was first a janitor. He wanted to become a waiter when, uh, we, when he wanted to provide better for his family. Um, we were living in the public housing projects in the Bronx. And he, when he applied to be a banquet waiter, he was turned down because he, they said his English wasn't good enough. And my father was, his English was okay, it wasn't great. Uh, but, it, but he had always a funny sense of humor. He would say, you know, who needs English in a banquet waiter? When you're a banquet waiter, everybody gets chicken. <laughs> it's, it's, it's coffee or tea. It's coffee or tea. I, I can handle that. And, and he, brought, he brought a complaint using his, uh, his labor union representative. I remember this man, even though I've never met him, his name was Vito Pita from the Hotel and Restaurant Workers Union. And he won his complaint. And they had immigrants whose English was as bad as my dad's. But they, were, they were Germans or Greeks or Russians or Poles. And a little dark-skinned black-haired Puerto Rican with a thick accent in the 1970s was not who they wanted to be serving the $500 plate dinners to their clientele. This was at the Warwick Hotel on 54th and between 5th and 6th. And he won. And this one man, Vito Pita, changed my life. I tell you, the ability to change one person's life who you may never meet is just astonishing. Because the minute my father became a banquet waiter, we moved out of the public housing projects. I was probably going down the wrong path. I was already about 11 years old, uh, introduced to drugs way too young. 
there was crime, there were gangs. I went to Catholic school, and there were children and murders in our, in our public housing project. There was no heat. Uh, the elevators didn't work. We lived on the 12th floor. And because of that one fellow, Vito Pita, we moved. We moved to a, a, a middle-income community in New Jersey. I finished up in Passaic County. My father bought his first car with us as a family. I got my first stereo. My mother got a brand new living room set. Their marriage became a lot easier because they weren't fighting over money or worried about money. Their 11, 10-year-old boy went to public school and started getting good grades again. Uh, and that changed our lives. And I will say to you this, is that you have to figure out what in your personal narrative you can draw on to make you successful. The wise Latina line, I think, is a, is, a, is a good one. It's not to say that only Latinas can be wise. There's, there can be a, a wise Jewish American woman who draws on her background and her history. There can be a wise Asian American who draws on that heritage and that background. But you've got to put that forward in a way and tap into that. And it's that ability to think about the world and to, to pull from within and to use the skill sets that you know you have. If you have, if you have the charisma of a Magogadi, you shouldn't be working in a, in a, in a library. You, know, you need to be out in front. <laughs> and, and all I say to you is this, is just do that inventory with your friends. I mean, it's, it's often hard to do. I mean, there are things in which um, you, the, your teachers are not often the, the best to know you, but I say, you know, think about that. What, one of the things that's helped me along my life is that my father was never intimidated by anyone, even of wealth. And he was an intrepid fellow. He, would, he, was, he was not at all afraid. And in my world, I've, when I think about the fact of where I've gone to where I've come, and the fact that I, I don't struggle with whether or not I, I, I belong there, I did once. I, I did once and when I first went to Princeton. I wonder whether I was just an affirmative action baby. And, whether or not I was smart enough, and then I proved it to myself and to, my, to myself, most importantly. And when you tap into that human spirit and the ability to kind of both use all of your mind and intellect, but also use your background and skills and your personality, I'm sure it will be a ringing success. I'm Andrea Holland, uh, a fellow at NYU, and um, I've been, for the past 15 years, I've been fighting Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, initially as a founding board member of the Service, Legal's, oh, uh, Service Members Legal Defense Network. And I'm very proud to be a member of Knights Out, the West Point alumni group fighting what we deem to be a deeply flawed, tragically misguided policy. Um, I'm also very proud of Lieutenant Dan Choi. He's a Knights Out member, and to take this back to your original point, he's my friend. Uh, he recently chained himself to the fence uh, outside the White House. He was arrested, and he most likely faces a court-martial. If you were defending Dan in court, um, what would your arguments be? And if you were his friend, um, what would you tell him? Wow. Okay, let's see, we have a couple. Hi, how are you? Hello, um, thank you for um, sharing your, your experience. And, uh, What's your name, sir? My name is Samuel Mpanga. Uh, I come from the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm an MPA student. Um, 
I'm a bit uh, intrigued by um, you touching about the issues of child uh, um, child uh, violence, child abuse, and um, I would really like to get your ex, uh, opinion because um, in my country uh, we had had a lot of child sexual abuse, child violence, and um, the country uh, uh, enacted a law which is very strong, and people thought that once that law is in place and implemented, then um, we will see these cases reducing, but uh, it's really the opposite. Yeah, people have been imprisoned to life for life sentence, but still we see like child sexual abuse increasing. Um, what is your opinion on that? What other ways do you think that can be dealt? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, we'll just give it, yeah. Hi, my name is Anurag Gupta, and I'm a second year law student at NYU. Um, and yeah, thanks for sharing your story. I mean, your point and story about your father and your background, I can totally identify with that. Um, <coughs> and that's basically why I came to law school. Um, and my passion as a law student, as an aspiring advocate, as well as a social entrepreneur, are social and economic rights. Um, and I mean, having studied international law and economic and social rights and how they are changing the world outside of our borders, especially for a lot of people that are marginalized and oftentimes disenfranchised, how do we incorporate that um, discourse within our legal system? Um, and if there's any movement that's you know, bringing those rights forward for our populations? Thank you. I think, let's start with the last one first. Your name, Anara? Anora? Anurag, okay. Uh, my, my friend, Jazz Winder, who was my roommate in, in college, always made fun of me by the way I pronounce Indian names. And when he was about to have a son, I gave his baby shower. And I didn't know that this was a contest. He says, these are three names we're going to pick for my son. And we're going to have Anthony pronounce them. And the one that he... <laughs> The one he, he massacres the least is the one we're all going to select. So. It's my own cultural limitation. So, so look, I think if you see uh, health care reform, uh, it is a step forward towards social and economic rights. Read that discourse. It's, and the social economic rights framework was always a part of the human rights framework. You know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights right after World War II had both civil and political rights and social economic rights. The Cold War screwed it up because then you had the Western Bloc countries that took civil and political rights and said, right to, fr to be free from torture, political prisoners, right to free speech, that's what we care about. The Eastern Bloc countries took the economic rights, labor rights, the right to food, the right to shelter. They were always part of the same uh, Roosevelt uh, vision of the rights of all people. And I think slowly as we begin to talk about this in the context of an FDR Obama resurgence, I think you'll find that increasingly incorporated into the, into, uh, into the American discourse. The right to speak means very little unless you have food in your stomach that allows you to speak. And I always think that unless we think about it that way, the other civil and political rights are imperiled unless we deal with the economic and social rights. Samuel's question. Look, laws don't change the reality all the time or by themselves. Laws can help change norms and mores, but they have to be reinforced by a broader uh, context and uh, an education, uh, and it's slow. I mean, people didn't stop being racist in America uh, right after Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. I don't think we're even there yet now. But the fact is that laws can move the marker about what is acceptable and unacceptable in society. 
and I don't know enough about the context in your own country, but I think that especially preserving the rights of the most vulnerable, which are often children, the elderly, the mentally incapacitated, uh, is the most essential part of what the law can do. It has to do with the enforcement, mores, whether or not the people do a wink-wink or a nod-nod to what is the real reality, whether they're just a couple of cases where the people go to life, but the majority of people get off scot-free. That's a system of symbolism and impunity. To your friend, um, yeah, I read about his case. You know, as his lawyer, I would say, I would point out the difficulty of having lost his life and career and the precipice that he confronts and that discrimination and prejudice has a real human cost and that, in fact, is a mitigating circumstance. It's one of the, it's established in other parts of the law. It's less established and it's established at the death penalty level. It's ironically not as well established in all of the rest of the criminal code context. But the mitigating circumstances, I think, are key. You know, I think, you know, to your friend, I would say to him, look, we're winning this one. And, you know, I, we appreciate the, the kind of frustration, but we're going to win this one in our lives. I mean, it's just, this is what's so much fun. You know, we're going to, th that's why the right wing is so out of control on this, because gay people are going to have full equality in our lives. I guarantee it. And the don't ask, don't tell is the first domino that's going to fall. And so we want to keep him out of jail and healthy and well enough, I would tell him, so that you can be with me when we crack that bottle of champagne together when we take this all down. And I'd promise him a really good bottle of champagne or scotch, whatever he drinks. <laughs> They're betting on you as I am. So let's make sure we don't let him down. Thanks very much.